Thank you, Blake. I mean, not thank you for leaving, but what? Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, it is so encouraging. It, you know, I know I say this stuff, I guess, but uh, it's just so encouraging that on such a miserable day, there's so many people here to, today. So that's that's awesome. I mean, and I know it's because we've just got a heart to be able to, to gather together, to to present ourselves before God's word and and learn from him. But it's just, I don't know, it's just really encouraging to see you all here today. Uh, we're going to pick back up in our study in the Gospel of John. I want to just kind of jump into it because we're covering a, a large section here today. Uh, if you've got a, a Bible or a Bible app with you, if you would like to follow along, um, go to, to uh, John chapter 18, please. Weirdest thing in the world is it says Luke 18 in my notes here, so I don't, uh, I'm not sure who wrote these. I'm kidding. I, I, I had to qualify because I'm on email lists where they'll actually send you sermons in a can, basically. You could just, I could just phone this in, but, uh, I wouldn't because I'm just too fascinated with this stuff and there's no way in the world I could, I could do that. But anyway, we're in, uh, uh, the, the, the latter part of the book. It's a section known as the book of glory. And if you remember how John kind of breaks down, there are two, two books basically. There's the book of signs, which is the first chapters through uh, chapter uh, 10. And then we have the, the book of glory, which starts in chapter 13. On the back of your bulletin, we've actually got an outline of that if it, if it helps at all. Uh, chapters 13 through 17 of the book of glory were comprised of one long speech and prayer done by Jesus for his disciples. And uh, a lot of things were revealed in that about the nature of Jesus, the nature of his relationship with God, uh, promises made about the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful section. We left off last time with Jesus's concluding prayer. Janelle talked about how we can find purpose. We can find our purpose in examining that prayer that he prayed for us. It's a, it's, it's a fascinating uh, concept, one that's worth revisiting. John 18, as we come to this chapter now, it opens a whole new section in the book of glory. We're now moving into the climax of the hour, or the time as the NLT has been putting it, but the hour that Jesus has been talking about all through this gospel. Chapters 13 through 17, where Jesus was talking to his disciples and praying for them, we're, we're preparing us for the hour of darkness coming on this, this story. Chapters 18 and 19, the darkness arrives. The, 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 the penultimate event that this whole gospel has been pointing us towards, we're arriving at. But, you know, we say it's the hour of darkness or whatever, but we also remember how John began his gospel. Uh, his opening lines, a light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. So God's light prevails in all of this, regardless of how negative some of the things that we're going to be reading in the next few chapters may seem. There's something glorious and something wonderful happening here. And it's never outside of the realm of God's control, of God's power. So today we're going to read the dramatic account of Jesus's uh, arrest and trial before the Sanhedrin. It's the first stage of his sacrifice and the expression of his sacrificial love for us in this story. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, maybe that's why I wrote Luke, but at the beginning of Luke's gospel, it's something we'll read around Christmas time often. There's an account of an old man named Simeon who came to Mary as she brought the, her, her child Jesus, the baby Jesus, to the temple to be dedicated. And the old prophet 
took this infant Jesus in his arms and he said, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. And as a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And those words that he spoke come to pass in the events that we're going to be reading about uh, today. Many hearts get revealed in the trial of Christ. And it's going to serve to instruct us uh, about examining our own hearts, instructing us how we can examine and, and see where we are in our relationship with Jesus. Trouble always tests the mettle uh, of a person. The Apostle Peter tells us in his letter that we face trials in order to refine our faith, like gold gets refined when it's put into a fire. A crisis can bring out what's really going on in our hearts. And it can be a positive thing. It can, we can, in the midst of trouble, suddenly realize there's some real growth that's taken place here. This is awesome. But it can also expose some things that we need to, to look at and address in light of God's grace. So it may seem negative uh, when we find things exposed in our, in our hearts, but in reality, it's an opportunity for healing if we'll allow it to be that. And we're certainly going to see a lot of hearts revealed in, in chapter 18 here as we begin it. So I decided that I want to read this. You know, oftentimes when we're going through these, these texts, I'll break them down. We'll read a section and we'll talk about what it's, what it's saying and then we'll go on to the next section. I can't do this with this section here. I just feel like it's important that we read the entire thing uh, in one big chunk to get caught up into the drama, to be swept into this. Uh, you know, there's no way to feel it unless we just read the whole thing together. And some of these truths are, are important truths to feel, not just to understand uh, intellectually. So what we're going to be reading is dramatic, it's powerful. John, in, in such a forward-thinking way, cuts between scenes like a modern movie script. It's just amazing. So we're going to start off this morning with me doing a lot of reading, uh, uh, but then we're going to sift through this and see what it's going to tell us, see what we can discern from it and, and how our hearts can be enlarged by it. So uh, if, are we, I'm saying, are we cool with that? You got no choice. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, you do, but... but yeah. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> choices they're they're there okay so if you're there in uh, john 18 we're gonna start with verse one all right here we go after seeing these things and what things well the whole chapters 13 through 17 jesus you know uh was speaking to his disciples so after saying all these things jesus crossed the kidron valley with his disciples and entered a and if you're reading an nlt it says a, a, a grove of olive trees um yeah, that's right. He entered a grove. We know that that's what it is. It's, it's definitely getting at the heart. But the word in the original manuscript, in the Greek, is there. It's kepos, and it's garden. And I feel like it's really important. Uh, I'm not trying to criticize the NLT, and I don't want to undermine anybody's confidence in any English translation, but I really wish that it kept it garden. So I'm keeping it garden, if that's cool. But okay, so it valley with his disciples, and they entered a garden. Two, Judas the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now, with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. 
So he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? He asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I'm he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. (laughs) Once more he asked them, Who are you looking for? And again they replied, "Uh, Jesus the Nazarene? I told you, I am he, Jesus said. Since I'm the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you've given me. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? So the soldiers, their commanding officer and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. Uh, First, they took him to Annas since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at that time. Caiaphas was the one who had told the other Jewish leaders it's better that one man should die for the people in the other gospel accounts that is recorded there as being a prophetic statement that he made. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus as did another of his of the disciples. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke with the woman watching at the gate And she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, You're not one of that man's disciples, are you? (laughs) No, he said. I'm not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it warming themselves, and Peter stood with them warming himself. Inside, the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he'd been teaching them. Jesus replied, Everyone knows what I teach. I've preached regularly in the synagogues and the temple where the people gather. I haven't spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me. They know what I said. Then one of the temple guards standing nearby slapped Jesus across the face. Is that the way to answer the high priest? He demanded. Jesus replied, If I said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? And Annas bound Jesus and sent him to Caiaphas, high priest. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire warming himself, they asked him again, You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, No, I'm not. But one of the household slaves, the high priest, a a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Didn't I see you there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, Peter denied it. And immediately... A rooster crowed. That was... I. I <laughs> you, it's okay. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. All right, that's where we're going to stop today. Okay, so... Uh, we'll pick this drama up next week. I know we're kind of leaving it midway, but next week is is really important. We want to just kind of linger on that for a bit there. John follows the same basic chronological events uh, that the synoptic gospels do, but he leaves some of the details out and he adds 
some that aren't in the other synoptic accounts, it's probably because he knows about those other accounts and he doesn't feel the need to necessarily repeat it. John sets the scene of this crisis, uh, as I pointed out, in a garden. And I think that's really, really important because it's forcing us as the reader to revisit garden patterns, garden themes. Uh, And it takes us then immediately into the context of, well, what? What's a famous garden in the Bible? Yeah, it takes us back to the creation story. The one that God promised would crush the head of the serpent has come to the garden. But first, he has to have his heel bruised. So the quiet of the evening is shattered and a band of of Roman soldiers, temple guards, probably some of the religious leaders and their attendants surround Jesus and his disciples. And I love how John recounts this. Soldiers come up to arrest him, and it says, John says, Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward. Man, that's just, he didn't, he didn't go try to hide behind one of the other disciples, uh, you know. He didn't shrink back, he wasn't trying to run. No, this was his hour he's been waiting for. And when they asked who he was, he asked who they were looking for, and he identified himself as their target, saying, I am he, they all fall all over themselves in this. And I believe this is because this was God they were coming to capture. Uh, they couldn't. He's even you, you employing that terminology again. I am he, that covenant name that he had given to Israel at that time. The, the name identified as the one that Moses was speaking to. You know, all through these gospel accounts and in John's account as well, they've tried to arrest Jesus. They've tried to take him. And, and, and get him. And each time, what's happened? He's just kind of slipped away. He's not been, he's not allowed them to take him. But now, they got him surrounded. They got weapons, everything they need. They can't even stand before him. And Jesus steps forward and takes charge of his own arrest here. And at the same time, he's protecting his disciples from being arrested. I mean, outwardly, the situation looks like, ah, this is it. It's all over. It's spinning out of control. But no matter what it may look like, we see in this, Christ is in control of all of this. Christ is always in control, no matter what the chaos may look like. And listen, that's a whole sermon in there that uh, I don't have time for, but uh, it's something to meditate on, something to take with you. Get a cup of coffee, take a walk, and think about, about that. But this morning... We're going to look at this story uh, that we just read from the perspective of the characters in it. Because, as you know, I'm someone who believes that we need to try these characters on for size, to get our feet in their sandals and get a get a feel for what this is like. Because, because, uh, as I said, hearts and natures get revealed in this drama, and it's instructive for us. And I want to start with Judas because he certainly gets revealed in, in, in this event. Now, the the synoptic Gospels have a detail that John leaves out. Judas had a signal uh, for the soldiers to be able to identify who it is that they were supposed to arrest. Remember what the signal was? What was it? A a kiss. Yeah, he's greeting Jesus with a kiss. And, you know, so this is before, you know, they could Google Jesus or just look him up on Facebook to get a look at his profile picture or whatever. So Judas had to set up a signal. You know, not everybody was going to be that familiar with who this dude is. And so he's saying that, you know, when I kiss is the one that you're going to arrest. But the detail that John does provide in this, in verse 5, to me is even more poignant. 
It says, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Standing with the ones sent to arrest Jesus. The ones representing the system that wanted Jesus eliminated. What Jesus had been describing all through this as the world's system. And I think what we see here is that difficult times can reveal where our loyalties lay. Judas, you know, is forever going to be a mystery to us as to why he did this, why he betrayed Jesus like he did. People have been speculating on that since it happened, I suppose. We just, you know, we don't know. He he might have just wanted the money. John seems to infer that. He may have had his ideals frustrated by, by the kind of Messiah that Jesus ends up Uh, being. We don't know. All we know is where he was standing when this went down. And I just find that so poignant that a person can seem so close to Jesus, close enough to kiss him, and yet still be standing with the world, with the opposition to Jesus. And of course, you know, we're quick to shake our heads at Judas. Oh, that guy. But the thing is, I think all of us have Judas tendencies. I would venture to guess that all of us have been found at one time or another in our lives standing with the opposition to Jesus, where our loyalties to his kingdom get weak when we find something we want so badly or felt some hurt or anger so deeply we decide we don't care what Jesus wants. We want what we want, what we want at that moment. All things went along just like normal for Judas. No one would ever have known that his loyalties had shifted until this crisis brought it all to light. Just exactly where he stood. Oh, he stood with them. Trouble can do that. It can unveil things in our lives that we keep carefully hidden or sometimes things we're not even fully conscious are there but are lingering there, attitudes that we allow, that we don't examine or contemplate. It brings our true allegiances out into the open. And I'll be honest, I mean, you know, this is not me standing up here on the plateau to the little people telling you to get it together. I've been so many times in my life where I've pursued some self-willed desire only to find myself standing on the distant side of righteousness. But listen, if we find ourselves there, if, if, if we examine our hearts, if some crisis brings to light something going on with us, we don't have to lose hope. We don't have to fall into despair. We don't have to start self-castigating, oh, what's wrong with me or whatever. We simply need to take the few steps back to where our loyalties should be. And that's it. It's just a matter of remembering who Jesus is, remembering what Jesus is about and going back to that. You know, it, it's, it's a perplexing thing that we do as humans, but we're, we're prone to want to try to do penance for things. And, and you realize that there's no place in the Bible where God ever requires penance from human beings. That's, that's religion. That's, that's a construct of our own sense of the way things should fairly work out. But God doesn't, God simply requires repentance. And repentance simply means changing our minds. I changed my, I was going this way and I realized this is not the way to go and I'm going to go this way. I'm going to go according to God's purposes. And the thing is, if we find ourselves on the wrong path and we decide we want to come back, 
That's all it takes. His forgiveness is right there, waiting to embrace us, to fold us back in. There's nothing that we have to do in order to see that accomplished in our lives. It's simply a matter of recognizing and and moving our allegiances back to him. Honestly, I think Judas could have done that. I honestly believe that if Judas, when he saw them tie Jesus up like that, if he suddenly realized he was standing uh, with the wrong movement, he could have come to Jesus and declared his allegiance to him. And I truly believe Jesus would have accepted him immediately without asking questions. But Judas didn't. Judas chose to embrace despair. His story is there so that it's a cautionary tale so that we don't make that same mistake. Trust in the grace and the love of the God who made you. It doesn't take anything but to come back, to turn back to him. Let's take that to heart. The next person that we saw revealed in this crisis is Peter. And again, the, the, the synoptic gospels tell us that Peter had fallen asleep while Jesus had asked him to pray and stuff. So we know that Peter's one of us, right? We, he's, he, but, but I imagine him waking up, you know, from his slumbering prayer, uh, with a start. All of a sudden the camp is filled with torches and, and armed men and, and his mind, you know, starts to clear. He's shaken off the sleep and he looks around and realizes what's going on and he reaches in his satchel and he pulls out the small, short sword that he was carrying and acting like he's an action hero. He just charges at the closest guy to Jesus. And this was either like really brave or really stupid or maybe both. Because when John describes this group who came to arrest Jesus, he called them a band of soldiers. And in the Greek, the word literally means a, a military cohort, which is about 600 men. Now, I think it's very unlikely that 600 guys came out to arrest Jesus. It's probably hyperbole. The word doesn't definitively mean it's got to be that exact number. But John's trying to get across the point. There are a lot of armed dudes that showed up that night to to get Jesus. The soldiers would have been mostly temple guards, I would assume. Um, uh, and they weren't, you know, they weren't allowed to go out and do operations on their own without without a Roman escort. The weapons that the temple guards would have carried would have been clubs or, or, or uh, long uh, poles, basically. Uh, but there would have been uh, a contingency of Roman soldiers escorting them. And they would have had swords and spears and shields. They would have been armed with the latest technology at that time. It's into this group that Pete charges in alone. He's like Braveheart. He's probably painted his face blue. How'd you get that? He's yelling, freedom! Because remember, he said that he would die with Jesus. And here he's trying to prove it. (laughs) He runs in, he's swinging this sword. He just tells you what kind of a melee it is because he just lops a guy's ear off. And John gives us his name, Malchus, which means, the name means, my king which is just loaded with irony, and I'll let you contemplate that a, a little bit. But Peter is showing real bravado here. You know, we, we see where his loyalty is without question. He's, you know, he's, he's team Jesus. But Jesus' response is to tell him to knock it off, to stop trying to play Braveheart here, Peter. That's not helping. You're getting in the way of my Father's will. And here, I think we see that difficult times can reveal our tendencies towards self-reliance. 
Peter's actions were impetuous and based on what he perceived to be the right course of action. And we notice that he never looks over at Jesus and said, you want us to fight Jesus? What do we do? What should we? No, no. He just goes in swinging a sword, creating more problems along the way. <laughs> I don't know if you can relate to that, but I, I do. Uh, I can't tell you how many times when trouble hits, I just run around wildly doing stuff. Like, you know, <laughs> always with good intentions. Peter had good intentions in all of this, but I just only end up creating more messes along the way that I in turn have to ask Jesus to fix. There's another ear, Jesus. Could you put that back on for me? How often when a crisis erupts, do we begin to look around desperately for, for how we can take charge of the situation, how we can fix the problem, or even worse, how we can fix the person. And we just end up making things all that much worse along the way. Peter's habit of self-reliance was still evident later on in this passage, though it suddenly changes, it morphs a, a little bit. Uh, he's standing around a, a fire and, and he's faced with another crisis. Where he started off, he's facing down a mob of armed men with one little tiny sword. But here he becomes terrified of a little girl in verse 17 who just simply asked, were you with Jesus? <laughs> you know, this time without a sword, without Jesus in the vicinity, with just the nakedness of his own faith, then his courage crumbles and he takes matters into his own hands again by lying, by saying what he feels like he needs to say in order to preserve himself. And he lies three times in an effort to get himself out of this jam. But, you know, as the story went, the rooster rats him out and Eventually, he realizes he's made another mess of everything. I love that Peter is in this. I mean, without Peter, <laughs> without Peter, I wouldn't have this, you know, uh, soulmate <laughs> for my own journey with Jesus. But listen, when we see this happening in our own experiences, you know, in our, in our own reactions to trouble, when a crisis hits, let's, do what Peter didn't do. Let's stop ourselves. We feel that impetuous. You can't help how we feel. We'll feel that impetuous desire, that need to, to do something, to take control, to fix whatever it is, to take matters in our own hands. Let's resist the urge to follow through. Let's teach ourselves to stop and instead go directly to Jesus, asking what he wants us to do, if anything. Is there something I should be doing here? What should I be doing? And you may say, well, Rob, you know, I do ask Jesus what he wants, but I never get a vision or a voice or anything telling me what to do, so I just got to do it myself. Uh, and listen, yes, look, I get that. I mean, I totally, I, I, I don't want to be oversimplistic in this. It's easy to stand up here and say, just trust God, you know. And it's, it's, it's harder to live that out, you, you know. I mean, that's not... That's not something that comes naturally to any of us. And it's a rare thing for someone to get some audible direction uh, from God. But what we can do is develop habits of asking God for his guidance, regardless of what we're feeling. Begin to, to practice this habit. God, what should I do? Should I do 
anything before we act impulsively or even as we find ourselves acting impulsively, asking God, help me here, give me directions. And then what we do is we measure our, our possible responses or actions with what we know about Jesus. Like, here's what I know about Jesus. Would Jesus be doing this? I know it sounds like, you know, the old 90s, what would Jesus do? But there's, there is a point to that. I mean, what would he do? Like, how would he respond? How would he treat his fellow human being? What, what we know about Jesus and his values and his priorities, let's begin to develop the habit of applying that to the possible reactions or actions that we could take. In that habit, we can slow down and give space to God to open up different avenues and possibilities of, of ways to respond or to act. Let's, let's set out to change habits from impetuous self-reliance to habits of asking and listening for God because he loves us. He cares about us. He's not trying to play mind games with us. And oftentimes we're learning valuable things when we take our time, when we slow down and intentionally look for him. I can't, you know, I can't even recount all the times where when I have done that, avenues and, and, and ideas occur to me. It's not an audible voice. It's just a sudden realization. Oh, well, yeah, this is what I could do here. And that seems really obvious now when I'm not in the heat of this moment. But if we can begin to develop these habits. It's not going to happen overnight. And there's going to be plenty of mistakes along the way, but this is the direction we want to go. And as we go that direction, God, by his spirit, will reinforce that as, as a way of life for us, uh, seeking his direction. It's developing patterns of trust. And that's what it is to trust him, to trust that he's going to lead us in this, believing that he's in control and has plans in our times of trouble. doesn't mean he's going to always fix the trouble, but he has plans. He has ways in which he can lead us through these things if we'll trust him. I mean, it seems attainable, doesn't it? It's, it's hard to do, but I think it's attainable. Well, finally, the other hearts that I want to uh, look at here that get revealed in this account are those of Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin council members. In their frenzy, to maintain their position of power and influence, which is what this was all about with them. They stoop to breaking the very law that they claim to uphold in, in order to get their way in this, in order to achieve what their goals are. And for what I see from them, I realize that a crisis is often going to bring hypocrisy to light. Because under Jewish governmental laws, things elaborated by Moses or set out by Moses, elaborated in the Mishnah, people weren't supposed to ever be tried in some sort of criminal case at night. Nighttime was not a time for that. Those are the when the deeds done in darkness are done. No one's in the room when it happens in those moments. They're supposed to be tried during the daylight hours. And they were only supposed to be tried during before an assembly a full assembly, which they didn't have according to the synoptics and John's account here. Yet they had Jesus bound and they they hit him, they beat him before they had proven anything uh, wrong, proven anything against him. And that's something that Jesus is pointing out in John's text. You're supposed to do this this way. You're not. He's highlighting what, what they're doing. They, they They were illegal proceedings by their own standards. 
but they're trying to achieve something they believe promotes God's interest in society. They called in false witnesses, and again, this is the other gospel accounts tell us that, uh, something God specifically says he hates, Proverbs 6.10. He hates false witnesses. Not the people, but this practice. They did all these things without even batting an eye. And yet at the end of the text that we read today, when they appealed to Pilate, they wouldn't go inside the palace because they wanted to maintain ceremonial cleansing. They wanted to be ceremonially clean so they could still do the outward practices of Passover. This is the height of religious hypocrisy. This is the stuff that Jesus rebuked all through his ministry. You want to know the real enemy to the church? You want to know the real enemy to Christianity in the United States? It's hypocrisy. It's the greatest danger we face. We're not facing it well. But it's the, it's the gravest thing that we need to address and consider. It's something that, that I feel like is important. Anything that would allow us to feel justified in deceitfulness or hatred or discrimination or corruption or any oppression of the weak, as long as outwardly we conform to some religious language or moral hot topic, that is the sort of religion that God states over and over again that he rejects all through the Bible. God's hatred of hypocrisy, well, it's it's found all through 66 books of it, but Get into the prophets, the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament. It won't take you long. You'll find it, his expression of distaste for that sort of hypocrisy. I just believe this needs to be a priority of self-examination in our present times for the church at all. Do we find ourselves placing more emphasis on how we fight in culture wars than we do on living and loving the way God instructed us to? If we do... There's a problem. Are we okay with unrighteousness as long as it helps us maintain a leverage of power within this broken world's society? I mean, we're going to unpack this a little bit more next week when Jesus stands before Pilate and the interaction between those two, it lays out for us the course of the kingdom of God. We're going to take some time and examine exactly what Jesus said there. And what Pilate said there. But listen, you know, I've stated it over and over. It's easy to shake our heads at the religious leaders of Jesus' day. But it's so important to try these characters on for size because these stories are here to enlighten and challenge and warn us about our own broken tendencies. Doesn't mean that we're supposed to wallow in condemnation or whatever. It means that we take uh, an honest evaluation of our pursuit of a life of faith and and allow the light of the gospel to shine on our own hearts to make a determination uh, about what we're pursuing, why we're pursuing it, and is this really what God is doing? Because I'm telling you, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they absolutely, 100%, believed they were pursuing God's purposes in protecting the integrity of Israel and the law of Moses. And they missed God's intention by a million miles. 
And the end result of that was Jerusalem lay in rubbles and the temple a smoldering heap. These stories are here to enlighten us and to provide a cautionary tale. During times of trouble and crisis, whether it's our own or crisis perceived in the world around us, a lot can be revealed about the state of our hearts, if we'll allow it. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to illuminate that, not to condemn us. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Not to condemn us, but to enlighten us and to draw us into our true calling, image bearers of God, revealing his loving rule into creation. So, let's learn. Let's learn from what we've read. And above all, let's remember that in the various crises of life, whether in the world around us or in our own experiences, Jesus is not shrinking back. He's not fighting. (laughs) He's not scrambling. No, he's in control. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and nothing takes him by surprise. He is above all things, in all things, through all things. He's accomplishing his will. doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. Pull back the curtain, and there he is, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of kings. And the kingdoms of this world one day will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. Those are the things that we remind ourselves in those times of crisis. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. We are on the side of the king. So let's trust him with our troubles. Above all, let's follow his lead. No crisis has stifled God's kingdom. His kingdom advances and grows no matter how difficult or how the odds are stacked against it. Let's find hope and courage in light of what we learn from this drama that Jesus lived out on our behalf to reveal the nature of his kingdom and the nature of our mission here as his followers. And my prayer is that we'll hear it and that we'll allow him to to shape us into the people we were meant to be. Right on? All right, very cool. If you will stand with me, please, if you're able. Father, we we come to your word week after week. And Lord, you don't need me to state it, but so that everyone hears me state it. I love your word. I love it. I'm so grateful for it. And I'm grateful for it even when it hurts. How many times I've looked into that mirror and not liked what I've seen. But even when I recoil, I fall back into your grace, your love which has no boundary. Help us, Father, to to look at your word, to hear you speak by your spirit through your word. Guide us. You've promised us the Holy Spirit to guide us and to lead us. Do that in our lives. And all of the things that we looked at today that could be challenging, ways in which we make choices, ways in which we try to control things with our own efforts and ingenuity, Father, I pray that your grace is present for all of these things because each one of us can look at, at our lives and 
recognize how we fall short. Help us, Father, to develop a robust trust in your grace and your love for us so that if we do find things that convict us, we're not, we're not thrown by it. We don't crumple in a heap, but we continue on forward, trusting and believing that you love us and you're calling us home. So bless this group of people, Father. Bless us as we follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
going through a phase and uh, I won't be carrying him up here when he's 16 I'm pretty sure (laughs) but if I hand him back he cries and it's a thing so father we thank you so much for your grace where would we be without your grace and I pray father that in light of all that we read today and things that were said I pray that your grace overshadows all of it and that we find ourselves hidden and secure in that Bless each one to that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Well, let's uh, we'll speak this blessing on each other. Am I forgetting anything? Or? Okay. So let's, uh, I don't know why I always look. At, I don't know why I look at you like as if you would have answers. <laughs> let's speak this blessing on each other before we leave here today. May the peace of the Lord Christ be with you wherever He may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again to these doors. Go in peace, you children of God.